our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. My goal in this deposition was to be truthful, but not particularly helpful. Welcome to Unspun, the podcast that makes you better at finding the truth. The way people get news is changing. It used to be that there were many reporters who would research stories and write articles, but now politicians and famous people share information directly with you on social media and the internet. That means you find out things fast, but it's up to you to make sure the information's actually accurate. And newsmakers don't always do their part. The temptation to manipulate information is strong. They bend the truth to deceive so that they can avoid accountability, so that they can advance their agendas. When you recognize these agendas, you can sometimes find out what's real. And we're at a crossroads where anyone can share anything online. So it's important to sharpen your critical thinking skills. Finding that deception before it goes viral is pretty much a survival skill now. And we're going to do it together. Let's get unspun. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unspun. He said because the president wanted people to remain calm. Well, let's get so I, have, no, but Susan, I, this is important, Susan, I, and I, I want to add, but if, Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking. I have to I'm speaking. Yep. Yeah, let's talk about PAC in the court, then. Let's talk about the Please. PAC. Yeah, I'm, I'm about to. $400,000 a year. He said he's repeal the Trump tax cuts. Uh, Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking. Well, <laughs> I'm speaking. It'd be important if you said the truth. If you don't mind letting me finish. Ah, uh, presidential debates. An article in the Journalist Resource called them the Super Bowl of American Democracy. And people watch them, 73 million of them for the first 2020 debate between Biden and Trump. Sam Tannenhaus from The New York Times said, modern debates are not really so much about the candidates' policies and ideas as about their characters and personalities. And I'm not going to lie, listening to stuff like the clip we just heard, I find them a little painful sometimes. But do they actually affect the election? Well, that's a question political scientists have been toying with for a while now, and some of the results might surprise you. Professor Douglas Yates reminds us that those political debates often aren't debates at all. He calls them television spectacles, and he notes that they're a combination of, quote, invective, ad hominem insults, unwarranted claims, unverified facts, slogan-mongering, immaterial subject matter, anecdotal evidence, hypothetical examples, and many other logical fallacies. That's the end of the quote. So you have to wonder, why do people watch them? Perhaps some of it is just to see the show. One interesting thing was that in 1960 presidential debate, Richard Nixon debated challenger John Kennedy on television, and people who watched the debate on TV thought that Kennedy won. Researchers found that people who listened on the radio ranked Nixon higher. Nixon looked kind of nervous and uncomfortable on television. So, you know, maybe if you're looking for a show, you might tend to favor the person who gives the most entertaining one. Writing way back in 1978, communication researcher Steve Chaffee suggested that debates could be really helpful to voters. He said some studies showed that voters did become more knowledgeable about the positions of the candidates after they watched a debate on TV. Another factor he discussed said that people just pay more attention to political news in the time leading up to that debate. And at that time, watching the debates seems to make you more confident in the institutions of government itself. This one seems kind of wild to me today. Travis suggested that debates can have a valuable informational aspect, especially when some of the candidates are relatively unknown. But, you know, he was writing back in the 70s, and the effects of debate seem to have changed as technology and the whole political spectrum has evolved. So a more recent study from the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg School found that although households do watch debates, more of them than did in 1960, a smaller percentage of households now tune in. 
But they surveyed likely voters and found that about a third of them perceived debates as the most helpful factor in deciding their vote. And so this kind of raises a paradox for me. While the viewership goes down, the debates still have a significant influence on voter decisions. And moreover, watching debates tends to reinforce people's existing political views. People become even more supportive of their own party's candidate. This might just be because of the debate itself, but according to research by Cho and Yurheen in political communication, things like the post-debate discussion on the news play a really important role in strengthening these partisan opinions. And Cho did a different study in 2009 that was just so interesting. The format in which the debates are presented on TV, such as if it's single versus split screen, impacts the way viewers assess the candidate views on the issues. If the candidates are shown on split screen, viewers change their views according to partisan cues and beliefs about the candidate's character more than their own thinking about the issue. Have a listen to this debate quote where candidate Ronald Reagan definitely uses a joke to kind of set aside concerns about his age at the time. Mr. Truitt, your question to President Reagan. Mr. President, I want to raise an issue that I think has been lurking out there for two or three weeks and cast it specifically in national security terms. You already are the oldest president in history, and some of your staff say you were tired after your most recent encounter with Mr. Mr. Mondale. Um, I recall yet that President Kennedy had to go for days on end with very little sleep during the Cuba Missile Crisis. Is there any doubt in your mind that you would be able to function in such circumstances? Not at all. Mr. Truitt and I, and I want you to know that also, I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. Did you know that Reagan was 73 when he was nominated? That was the oldest at the time, but since then, both Donald Trump and Joe Biden have broken that record. Now, one of the things that debates do is help build an image for a candidate. Usually, those debates don't change anyone's mind about the candidate's personalities and leadership skills. Unless, you know, they're one of those folks who just hasn't made up their mind yet or doesn't really know much about the candidates. Warner and his colleagues looked at how images shift, and they looked at Joe Biden way back when he was Obama's VP candidate. Biden was already established when he joined the ticket. He had been in the Senate for a long time. For the ticket as a whole, it was a pretty close race. But, you know, established didn't really equal well-known. About half of voters who were asked said they didn't know enough about Joe Biden to make up their minds. And he was running against even more relative unknown, Alaska Governor Sarah Palin. Boy, did she draw the press, though. Everything from primetime news interviews to Saturday Night Live, her kind of everyman speaking style and her looks really drew the cameras. But going into the debate, a majority in both parties rated Biden as qualified for the office, but only Republicans felt the same way about Palin. So in Warner's study, he brought in a group of viewers and he had them rank the candidates on aspects like calm to excitable, qualified to unqualified, ethical to not ethical. The impression for Biden changed toward the positive after the debate. And the researchers guess this is because although the media who follow national politics assumed people knew a lot about Biden, they were wrong. And an unfamiliar audience learned about him through his debate performance. And media can maybe affect what debates do to audiences in another way, too. After the debate comes the death by analysis, you know, where all the news networks dissect all the moments from what just happened. And the trick is, though, that often they're just giving a comparison of who said the snappiest thing or who held the floor the best, and not an analysis of the policy statements they actually made. And researchers worry that this focuses on winners and losers and keeps people from actually considering important policy stuff. And presidential historian Michael Beschloss did an interview with NPR where he noted that debates can be useful 
because it's one of the few times that people will see the candidates giving their own responses and not being filtered by the media. But, you know, he did notice that the structured format can make that less useful. You really can't get into the weeds on policy matters in a two-minute response. So maybe because of this, candidates tend to look for those sound bites and to attack each other so that they can stand out. And the media analysis afterwards doesn't deal much with policy, so it's not really a big surprise that candidates would choose to do this. It's really interesting to consider this stuff right now when you have a situation like the one we're in, where neither major candidate is even showing up for the debates. Does that mean they're very secure as a frontrunner? It's worth noting that sitting office holders often don't come to debates. But in a situation like Donald Trump's, does it mean he's choosing not to show up because he's so secure? Or is it because he's insecure in how he would perform? Now, speaking of debates, they're pretty frequent places to find logical issues. So much so that I used to make bingo cards for folks, and it's pretty easy to get bingo. Today, I want to talk about a common logical mistake called the hasty generalization. It's when you draw broad conclusions from just one or two examples instead of enough evidence. I know I've done it, like when one driver cuts me off and I think, oh, all the drivers in this city are so aggressive, and that's not fair, right? A hasty generalization goes like this. I observe one or a few examples of something, and then I make assumptions about a much bigger group. You know, just because my noisy neighbor plays loud music at night doesn't mean all millennials blare their stereos while people are trying to sleep. Here's a more serious example from history. In the 1950s, Senator Joseph McCarthy claimed that there were more than 200 communists infiltrating the State Department, and this led to hysteria and accusations against anyone suspected of being communist. But McCarthy only had flimsy evidence against just a few people. So his sweeping accusations, they were a hasty generalization, and it was used not only against government workers, but others like professors and actors. Let's listen to a couple of examples of hasty generalization from debates for this week's warm-up. This is a great country but I think it could be a greater country. And this is a powerful country, but I think it could be a more powerful country. I'm not satisfied to have 50% of our steel mill capacity unused. I'm not satisfied when the United States had last year the lowest rate of economic growth of any major industrialized society in the world because economic growth means strength and vitality. How might that be a hasty generalization? It doesn't have any context. Kennedy's implying that the existing White House leadership, you know, President Eisenhower and Vice President Nixon at the time, was doing something wrong. But you just don't know that from one year's worth of data. And in fact, in this case, Nixon goes back and corrects him in the next exchange. Let's listen. Where then do we disagree? I think we disagree on the implication of his remarks tonight and on the statements that he has made on many occasions during his campaign to the effect that the United States has been standing still. We heard tonight, for example, the statement made that our growth in national product last year was the lowest of any industrial nation in the world. Now, last year, of course, was 1958. That happened to be a recession year. But when we look at the growth of GNP this year, a year of recovery. So as you can hear, Nixon maybe looked kind of uncomfortable, but he did make some important points about context there. Let's listen to one more. But those businesses that are in the last 3% of businesses happen to employ half, half of all the people who work in small business. Those are the businesses that employ one quarter of all the workers in America. And your plan is to take their tax rate from 35% to 40%. Now, and I talked to a guy who has a very small business. He's in the electronics business in, uh, in St. Louis. He has four employees. 
He said he and his son calculated how much they pay in taxes. Mm -hmm. Federal income tax, federal payroll tax, state income tax, state sales tax, state property tax, gasoline tax, it added up to well over 50% of what they earned. And your plan is to take the tax rate on successful small businesses from 35% to 40%. The National Federation of Independent Businesses has said that will cost 700,000 jobs. That was Mitt Romney debating Barack Obama back in 2012. Where's his hasty generalization? Well, he talked to a guy. Is one guy everybody? Is one guy the full economy? No, of course it's not. It's another hasty generalization in a debate. And as we get closer to the primary elections, you'll see more of the candidates in debates, and you can have a chance to look out for this kind of logical error. Another thing that you're going to see as we get close to the election, though, is lots and lots of stories based on polls. But what about that? It seems like polls didn't do a very good job of calling the last couple of elections. So is there even a point? Do polls still have value? When we come back, I have a guest who's worked professionally in polling, and he'll give us the lowdown on what polls mean and why he thinks they still matter. I'll be right back. My guest today is Dr. Ken Fernandez, and he is a faculty member at the College of Southern Nevada, where he teaches political science, and he is an expert in polling. In fact, I first met him in his context as the leader of a poll, so I thought he'd be a great person to talk to us about that today. So, uh, Dr. Fernandez, welcome to Unspun. Thanks for having me. Can you tell me just a little bit, first of all, or tell all of us maybe a little bit about your career path, particularly as it relates to polling? Sure. I got my uh, PhD at the University of California, Riverside, and I started working with some people that did survey research. Uh, we actually started out doing mail surveys. We would, sur- uh, we would survey mayors, local officials, planning commissioners, economic development officials, just to see what people in California were doing to stimulate the economy. So I started doing that type of research. I then became a project manager at a small uh, telephone survey research center at Cal State San Bernardino. Then I became a professor at UNLV, mostly analyzing data, but then I became director of the Elon Poll uh, in 2012. But now I teach at College of Southern Nevada, where I teach a class on introductory, uh, introductory survey research methods and demographics. And I'm teaching a class at Arizona State University on the psychology of polling. Oh, wow. So lots of different experience there. That's great. Can you tell me a little bit about how a poll like maybe one you'd see in the media actually gets created? So what are the steps you go through to do that? Yeah, I mean, I guess like um, any research project, because a poll is sort of asking a hypothesis, how do people feel, right? Um, You have to understand the purpose of your uh, poll. So a lot of media polls might just ask people's attitudes on abortion or on gay marriage or what have you. Uh, But if it's a poll that is focusing on an election, and trying to make maybe a a prediction, then you have to understand what the purpose of your poll is. So that's the first step, right? And once you determine that, you have to figure out the target population. So if you just care about opinions, then you might just survey just adults, right? So what percentage of adults support gay marriage or um, understand Dobbs versus Jackson, Supreme Court case overturning Roe versus Wade? But if you're interested in in an election, uh, sort of a horse race election, then you are going to be focused on registered voters, perhaps if you're a year away from the election or six months from election. But as you get closer to the election, now you're more concerned about, you know, do we want a likely voter? Uh, How do we measure that? So the target population is clearly the next step. Who are you going to focus on? 
And then you have to develop your questions. Now, the one thing about uh, election polls, I think, is we often borrow very similar question wording uh, from other organizations so we can make comparisons. So and you can do that. I tell my students, you know, if you borrow a survey question, you're not plagiarizing. If you borrow a big chunk of a survey, you may be plagiarizing. But we often borrow uh, survey uh, questions so that we know that we can compare across institutions and across time. And so the question wording would be a big issue. And then, of course, figuring out the mode. Are we going to do a telephone survey? Is it going to be an online survey? Uh, that would that would be the next step. And then, of course, you know, implementation. Usually you would get some help from maybe a, a contract company that would help you out uh, to hire the the, the workers to make the live interview calls or use a software like Qualtrics to collect the data through an online, you might use an online panel like Amazon Turk or Survey USA or what have you. So there's a lot of steps and that's a very, very, very general description of sort of how you'd approach that. So um, you mentioned the idea of maybe like choosing likely voters as you get closer to an election. Um, how does that like affect the accuracy of the results that you might get from a poll? Yeah, so if you only look at registered voters, we know that a certain percentage of registered voters don't turn out to vote, especially like in a midterm election. Um, partly that's social desirability. If you ask people, do you plan on voting? A lot of people say, of course, I'm going to vote. We live in a democracy and that's my duty. But things come up and they don't vote. So you ask, ask questions to sort of get a sense of, you know, are they really going to uh, vote? Have they voted in the past? how much thought that they uh, have been given the election. Do they know where to register to vote? Do they know where their precinct is? Um, in some cases, you can get a company to provide you phone numbers of registered voters and provide information about their past voting history. So you can use that as well to sort of you know make sure that you're getting people that are consistent voters. The downside is that there may be people that are 18, just registered to vote, and they have no voting history. Most companies, most organizations would include pretty much all of them with a few screening questions like, do you plan on voting if you're 18 years old? Uh, how much thought have you been given uh, to this thing? Because young people tend not to turn out uh, at the same rate as people my age who are very excited about elections. I'm wondering, I'm seeing polls that are being published right now, like news organizations are commissioning polls and they're publishing news stories about who's ahead. And we're like, more than a year ahead of the election, and they're asking about candidates who aren't even the candidates yet, right? They're still candidates in the primary. Why? How does this sort of help democracy? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's it's supply and demand. Um, I think immediately after an election, we're still sort of excited about election, and we think about the next election, even if it's two years or four years away. So yeah, I mean, and, and part of it is that um, we know that people are going to be trying to think ahead get uh, some support, get some campaign contributions. So even though we might be a year ahead from election or even two years, there is this notion like, who are the contenders? Who are the people that could make a run for it? And I think you have people engaging internal polls all the time when they're interested in running for a, an election for the first time. Or if you're a member of the House and you plan on running for the US Senate, you might be doing internal polls two years in advance, just to get a sense, do you have a shot? Do you have the name recognition? So I think political candidates and news organizations are always interested in serving data. Uh, it is a snapshot at that time. And so 
if you try to use that as a prediction, you're, you're fooling yourself, right? But does it mean that that information is meaningless? Not necessarily. And it may be a good, a good predictor of like, who are the people that might have a contention, um, uh, who might have a chance of winning uh, in the future? And again, there's always people thinking about throwing their hat in the ring. And that polling data sort of provides that information of who those people might be. Okay. So you mentioned about internal polls. So does that mean like someone's campaign or something would actually go and hire somebody to do a poll just for private information that only goes to them? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I always joke with my students that polling gets a bad rap and like, oh, after 2016, nobody, nobody believes polls anymore. Absolutely false, right? You have candidates that are doing internal polling all the time because they know that survey research isn't perfect, but there's no better way to find out what a large group of people are thinking uh, at one particular time, point in time. So yeah, absolutely, internal polls are done. And I think Barack Obama in 2008 hired some spectacular people that were really good at polling to find out where they needed to target their money at particular districts and particular states, right? So yeah, absolutely, internal polling is done all the time. Okay. So you were talking about getting the opinion of a large group of people. And so if you wanted to do something like who's going to win for president of the United States, how many people do you have to ask? Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, if we could go back in time in 2008 and 2012, where the polls were very good, especially when you aggregated them like 538 did, um, 2008 and 2012 were spectacular time periods for polling. They were they were abnormally correct. Right. Um, so in that case, you know, a thousand cases. Right. Or 1200 cases for a national poll were very common. Now that we're shifting to online surveys that may not be perfectly a random sample that's achievable through a random digit dial, they try to make up for that lack of randomness by large numbers that can create something that is statistically representative of the United States. And so typically an online poll, oh, easy to see 2,000, 5,000 cases. So I think it really depends. But because telephone surveys are so expensive, you probably would see that most national telephone surveys trying to predict a presidential race, at least 1,000, maybe about 1,200, maybe 1,500 cases, depending on if you want large enough subgroups to be able to make comparisons, Latinos, Democrats, Republicans. Um, so I, typically, I think you would see anywhere between 1,000 and 1,500 for a telephone survey, more than that for an online survey, 5,000 maybe. So is one or the other more accurate between telephone and online? Well, um, starting, starting around, you know, 10 years ago, online polls got a lot better. They were really bad early on, but they've gotten really good and they've been able to make up for that lack of randomness by sheer number and waiting. You can wait, you know, if, if you don't have enough one, if you survey a 5000 people, you can get young people and you can get a sizable amount of African-Americans and Latinos and you can weight them appropriate to match census data. So I think online polls have done extremely well. I think, you know, I think Survey USA when it first came out. It was using online surveys and IVR, which is interactive voice uh, response surveys, which it's a recording and it tells you press one if you're going to vote for Donald Trump, press two, Joe Biden, which they have lots of problems. 
But SurveyUSA using online non-random panels and IVR that call landlines have actually produced some very, very good polls. Um, and I think Nate Silver ranks them as an A plus, right? But, you know, 15 years ago, I would have laughed at that methodology because, you know, I grew up that telephone surveys with random digit dialing was the only way to go. Now, again, prior to, to my generation, there, there was a belief that face-to-face -face surveys were the only way to go. So it's amazing just in my lifetime to see the, the technology that we laughed at, you know, when I was a graduate student is now supplanting uh, and, and replacing telephone surveys, which was considered the gold standard. So just to make sure I understand, when you say random digit dial, that means that you take like all the possible phone numbers for a given area and then you kind of generate those numbers randomly and then call them? Yeah, and like it may a selection just be the last four numbers that are, are randomly generated because you might know the zip code and you might know sort of the prefix code. So that was typically uh, typically used in a lot of surveys. When cell phones um, emerged and people were not changing their area code um, when they moved, you still had companies that were able to get information regarding where the zip code billing was. So, so you could still get those people who might have a different zip code in an area um, and just because they haven't moved and changed, they haven't changed their, their area code for their phone. So there was definitely, definitely techniques to capture those people who haven't changed their cell phones so you could get a random sample using random digit dialing. And that was much easier with landlines as well. So as technologies change, getting a random sample has become more complicated, but it's still possible. The downside with telephone surveys is that response rates now have dipped below 6%, meaning if you call 100 phone numbers, you're lucky to get six people to respond. And so that's mm -hmm. why online surveys, which still have, you know, trying to email someone, remind them to take a survey, agree to take a survey on their computer or their smartphone, that response rate's not very high as well, but they can make up with it by getting, instead of 1,000 cases, 2,000 cases, 3,000 cases that can help uh, offset that non-randomness of a, of a typical online panel. Now, um, Pew, what Pew does is they do a ABS, an address-based survey. So they send out a mailing with a small financial incentive and they create a random geographic sample for their online panels. And then they send them a link saying, hey, would please take this survey this month about, you know, gun control or about the election. Um, and so that online panel is actually considered a random sample geographically. But those are much more expensive than the typical panel. Um, I, I approached at the American Political Science Conference this September. Um, I approached an online panel company and they said they would charge you five bucks per response. So a thousand cases would cost you five thousand. Uh, but again, that's not a random sample, but they try to create a panel that is representative descriptively of the U.S. population. OK, I need you to define two things for me. First of all, can you define what you mean when you say random? Random meaning that basically um, all the people in your sampling frame, so the, the people that you think are registered voters that you have access to or information about, you can take a random sample where each person has the same chance of getting selected. And that would produce, right, a, a, a representative sample 
just out of the power of large numbers, like anything over a thousand, and the power of randomness. Now, the problem is there's selection bias. So you might be able to take a random sample of a list of registered voters' phone numbers. The question is who's going to answer the phone? Typically older people, people who trust the government, people who trust polls. The people that are younger trust the government less and trust polling less, right? they may be less likely to answer a poll. And so that randomness gets contaminated by selection bias, that not everyone has the same desire to answer a poll as everyone else does. Okay. And if I remember back to my own grad school days, some of the statistical tests we might use to sort of make sense out of the data kind of assume that the data is random or randomly collected. Yes. And so you still (laughs) will see non-random online panels report the results and give a margin of error. And then they may make some adjustments that would account for non-randomness. But it's not uncommon for an online poll that's not random uh, to provide a margin of error based on the sample size just for the reader's understanding, right? Okay. So I got two more terms for you then. So the first one is panel. What do you mean when you say that? So an online panel is usually created by some company where they go out and recruit people to be part of this panel. And they they are now have it in a database with information and they will then um, uh, ask, you know, send out an email to say, hey, we now have a survey for you. Please take it. And they may be paid or compensated um, or they may just do it for fun how you sort of encourage people to take surveys, incentives matter, but also just, you know, telling people that they're a part of an important panel that could be used to predict elections. They might voluntarily participate, but a lot of panel members are compensated. So these organizations spend a lot of time recruiting young people, old people, African-Americans, Latinos into this database. And then they, they shop that around. They say, Hey, We have a really good panel that's highly descriptive of the United States. It's not a random sample, but it is a large, large panel, and and you could use this for your studies. And typically, we found that they they can work quite well, um, depending on the quality. Um, A lot of, you know, sort of academics with a a limited research budget use Amazon Turk, and you you can use their online panel, and you can pay... Uh, members to take surveys anywhere from 10 cents for a short survey up to a dollar. And so, um, and typically what we found is for, for, for research purposes, when you're testing a hypothesis uh, experimentally, uh, experimentally the, that panel works really, really well. But an Amazon Turk panel probably would not work very well in predicting an election. But the Pew online panel, where it, it is randomly recruited geographically through address base information, that one would be a better online panel to be able to predict presidential elections because it's an online survey getting large sample sizes and it has uh, an element of randomness because it's an address based uh, survey from the start, from recruitment. Okay. And then you also said that um, some cities will report to the public like their margin of error. Can you explain what that means? Sure. Yeah. The margin of error, you know, we only take one survey at a time, but if you were able to take a thousand surveys, 
right, of a thousand people in one one magical swoop. And we can do this with computers by creating a hypothetical population and then taking a bunch of samples, right? What we find is that um, if you plotted all the different results, because every survey would be slightly different just because of statistical random error, you would find that it would, if you plotted the, that distribution, it would look like a bell curve where 95% of the results of this random sample, if you took a random sample a thousand times, it would look like a bell curve where most of the results fall, 95% of the results fall within two standard deviations of the true mean, right? So knowing that if we take one sample, we can use that margin of error plus or minus 3%, for example, to give an approximation that we're 95% confident that the true true parameter out there, the true result falls within this range, right? Uh, and so that that's that's the notion of a margin of error. It's really a 95% confidence estimate. We're 95% confident if we did everything right in the poll, and that's a question, but if we did everything right, we're 95% confident that the true population parameter, the true number out there falls within this range. Okay, so if you had like candidate A and candidate B and candidate A came in at 48% plus or minus three, then you'd be 95% confident it would be between like 45 and 51. Exactly, exactly. Okay. That you think at that point in time, if you did everything right, right, you, you would imagine that the true population falls within that range. And in a close election, that matters, right? I think what happened in 2016 was that Hillary Clinton in some northern Midwest states was consistently ahead of Donald Trump, but within the margin of error. But when, when humans see that one person is always leading in every poll, you're like, well, that person must win. It's like, no, the election's really close. And every poll shows that it's within the margin of error. So we're not 95% confident that Hillary Clinton's going to win. But I think we got so confident with 2008 and 2012 that if someone is consistently winning or leading in a poll, even if it's a within a 1% you know, uh, margin, we just say, well, they, they must win. They must win. And we found out that Trump, Trump won in some of those northern Midwest states by a very small margin, within the margin of error. Yeah. Okay. And so I know that newsmakers and people who are running for office, they really like to talk about polls and they really like to talk about polls that favor them. Um, are some polls better than others? Yeah. I mean, you know, 10 years ago, it said live telephone surveys are the best uh, and random digit dialing uh, is the best. Um, and those are the best polls. That has changed. That has changed. Again, you know, Survey USA uses IVR, interactive voice uh, response surveys, along with a, a really good online panel, and they produce really good results. Um, so I think to identify high quality polls, um, I think really, rather than looking just at the methodology, part of it is the, the, is the proof in the pudding. Are they getting it right? Are they getting it right even though they're not doing a perfectly random sample? but they are getting a large sample size. They're able to weight that data in, in an appropriate way. They're using a good likely voter screening process and they're, they're predicting results in a consistent manner. Um, so I think, I think um, the proof is in the pudding. And the nice thing is we have organizations like 538 that 
track the track record of these polls and give them a rating. And, and, and we find that online polls, uh, online panels that might not be random are doing pretty well in predicting uh, elections. Okay. So would you say going to something like 538 that does those ratings of polls would be a good idea if you didn't go to grad school in political science or? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And typically, you know, the nice thing about 538 is that it will link to that organization and you can go dig at their, um, their uh, method methodological details. 538 will tell you, is this a, a live telephone call? Is it online? Is it mixed method? But it won't, it won't provide you with all the details of their methodology, but they always place a link to the organization where you can then look at that. So 538 is a very good, uh, useful tool if you want to start, you know, digging, going down that rabbit hole of polling methodology, because it looks at so many polling results, their track record. If they typically lean, you know, typically have a Democratic bias or a Republican bias and their overall track record and then just an overall letter grade. Great. Um, so. As you know, I'm a journalism professor, and there's quite a relationship between uh, the media and polling. So as someone who comes from the polling side, do you think the media does a good job in reporting the results of polls? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there was a criticism in 2016 that there wasn't enough emphasis on the margin of error and that close elections uh, in a state um, need to be looked at very carefully. Um, but I think journalists learned and pollsters learned in 2016 to be very, very careful that polls that are six months you know, prior to an election uh, or a, a, a poll that is very close within the margin of error to start to make predictions. Um, I, I, think, I think journalists have realized that that's not, not very safe to do. I think we re realized uh, that a poll is not a crystal ball. I think we got overconfident in 2008 and 2012, uh, and we thought that aggregating all this polling data from all these different organizations would create a crystal ball, right? And then 2016 happened, and we were wrong. And so now I think we do realize that uh, any particular given year, I mean, even you know, Gallup became extremely famous by taking on the liter literary digest which had a mail, mail survey that had predicted presidential elections uh, very accurately um, in the past. And Gallup's like, hey, things are changing. I guarantee my methodology will, will outdo yours. And he was absolutely right. And, and he, he made a name for himself and the organization. But then 1948 came out and they stopped polling a little bit too early and they predicted Dewey would defeat Truman. And, and then Gallup adjusted their methodology and was doing extremely well. Then 2016 came, Gallup didn't do as well. We know that any given election, any given survey is gonna have flaws uh, beyond the margin of error. And if we're aware of that and we just use the poll as a snapshot in time and, and realize that it's far better than no information, but it's clearly imperfect information, if, if we're not trying to look for a crystal ball, then I, then I think that's, that's good that the media is focusing on public opinion polls. Because I think public opinion polls are an important process of democracy so that we're not just influencing elected leaders every two years or every four years, that we're getting the pulse of America every month or every week. But again, I think journalists have learned after 2016, do not jump the gun 
uh, because we know that polling can be off any particular year. We can have really great years like 2008, 2012, and then we can have bad years like 2016. 2020 was better than 2016, but 2022 for the midterm election was actually quite a good year for pollsters in predicting who was going to win the House and the Senate. Uh, so again, um, it, it depends on excitement for election, turnout, and those things are always uh, uh, movable and, and changeable, and people change their attitudes. A lot, a lot of people make a decision about the candidate they're going to support maybe six months or even a year in advance, but some people do change their mind. And I think one interesting finding of 538 was tracking all the aggregated poll data. Um, Nate Silver basically said it wasn't Russian you know, Facebook ads influencing the election for Clinton. It was the Comey letter that happened pretty late into the election. That really sort of changed the dynamics of the of the campaign, and and I think you could measure that in the polling results. So I have another question for you. Then, since I know you're a political science researcher, is there any evidence that just the running and publicizing of polls changes what people do as far as voting? Yeah, it's not easy to measure that. So um, I was just reading an article about this and. And it is a common question asked by researchers. And then I think just the public, you know, do, does finding out that one candidate is in a massive lead, does that, does that affect people's voting? It's not an easy thing to measure given that polling is always around and, and it's very difficult to create a, a theoretical world with no polling and a theoretical world with polling, right? But I've read a few articles where a country like Australia or India will change the law about polling and exit polls and the timing of polling uh, near an election. And so some research have sort of used that sort of natural experiment to determine whether there may, may be a what we call a bandwagon effect. Do people like to back a winner or the opposite? If someone is leading by a dramatic amount, I might decide, well, I don't need to put a sign out on my yard. I don't need to go vote. I don't need to make a campaign contribution. So there's this underdog effect where the people that are backing a candidate that is the underdog, they put out more effort and the candidate that's leading, their, their supporters start to back off on their excitement, right? Is there evidence for that? You know, it's inconclusive. I've read articles that believe that there's an underdog effect that the person that's lagging behind in the polls might actually get a, a, a bump. Uh, and then I've seen some research that suggests there may be um, a bandwagon effect. Uh, in some cases, they just might wash each other out, right? When it comes to, rather than a horse race poll, but an attitudinal poll that asks you support for abortion or gay marriage or interracial marriage, there may be a social desirability effect that if, People have read that, you know, 80 percent of people support legalization of recreational marijuana. They may feel less comfortable admitting that they don't support that. So some of the bandwagon effect uh, or underdog effect have been sort of stronger in some research research designs when you're asking about attitudes rather than uh, their support for a candidate. Because when you come to like two major candidates, a Democrat or Republican, both are legitimate, right? No one's going to necessarily judge you too much like, oh, you're supporting the Democratic candidate? How dare you? But if you say you don't support gay marriage, maybe someone would judge you. 
right? Given that support for gay marriage has been increasing dramatically, especially since uh, the Supreme Court case in 2015. So I think like polls can affect through social desirability, people's ability to be honest about how they truly feel about, uh, you know, racial issues, critical race theory, abortion or gay marriage. Okay. Great. All right. Is there anything I did not ask you that I should have? I mean, I think I think uh, that my class on the psychology of polling is very um, obsessed with question wording and how small differences in question wording can make a difference. And Jason Hussler, who's the director of the Elon Poll now, he and I uh, did a study just looking at, at happiness and just slight changes in wording uh, can make a big difference. You, you would think that, hey, people will they know if they're happy or they're not. And slight variation in question wording is not going to make a difference, but it does. And any questions preceding a question about a candidate or about an attitude can have that effect, right? So let's say one candidate is not very strong on the issue of immigration, but you've just asked a question about immigration. So now when you ask, hey, what do you think about uh, Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump or Joe Biden, and you've just reminded the, the respondent that the issue of immigration is important, their support for a particular candidate can actually be measurably lower or higher, depending on if that candidate's really strong on the immigration issue. So we're, I'm, you know, it's surprising that you and I, our attitudes and our responses to surveys are greatly influenced by the framing of the question, preceding questions, the wording of the, of, of the, um, question. And one study found that even the order of the candidates that are presented to the respondent matters. So I think Al Gore versus George W. Bush, early, early on in the election, just the ordering, if you mentioned Al Gore first or George Bush first, made a statistically significant difference. So the survey mode, response ordering, question wording, and preceding questions can have a dramatic effect on survey results. Okay, very interesting. All right, well, Dr. Kim Fernandez, I really appreciate you being here on Unspun, and um, thanks so much. Thanks for getting Unspun with me this week. Unspun is a production of me, Amanda Sturgill, and is a proud member of the MSW Media family of podcasts. Send me your thoughts and ideas about trickery in the news on Gmail, at theunspunpodcast at gmail.com. I even write back. And find this episode's show notes and more information at theunspunpodcast.substack.com. Want to learn more and get smarter? Check out my book, Detecting Deception, Tools to Fight Fake News, which is available on Amazon or your favorite online bookseller. And until next time, stay sharp, everyone. <laughs>